Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, is ego the enemy? Is winning everything? And what defines us? This is Obstacle Course. Let's go. John, I'm truly excited to share today's episode and introduce today's guest, Mr. Jason Dorland. He is a former Olympic rower. He went through an incredible personal transformation. Some might say a fall from grace, uh, a reimagining of his identity. And he tells that and, and much more on today's episode. Oh, it's amazing. When I first heard that we got Jason, I was like, boy, oh boy, we're, we're getting in the big time. And the amazing thing about Jason is when he walks in the room, he was just such a normal guy. He was such an easy conversation. He was vulnerable. He shared his dark moments. I didn't withhold anything. And it just turned out to be to be one of our fav- one of my favorite episodes I think we've done. Just because sometimes you think when you get somebody who, you know, is quote famous or has done something on the world stage, um, you're not gonna necessarily get the full story. But I felt like we got the full Jason and and I think I think you guys are gonna feel the same way. A lot of the conversation has to do with identity and ego and the role that ego plays in our lives and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, what competition really means. And it's coming from someone who has been at the height of world competition and it nearly crushed them. And he will take you through that. And he now presents himself as a fantastic keynote speaker has written a couple of books and is in the process of written a third and, and runs some group facilitation. So if you're looking to experience more of what Jason does after this episode, I highly encourage you to check out yourmindset.ca. Obviously, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll have ways that you can reach Jason and see more of his story, see the look on his face after losing the 88 Olympic final in Seoul. It, it'll be there in the show notes and yeah, it makes it even more real. And, and if this conversation is anything, it's it's authentic, it's vulnerable, and it shows what can happen when we're pursuing something that isn't potentially aligned with our purpose or truly real. We'll never, in our existence, we'll never be able to avoid pain. No. Not for the long term. But what he shows is that it is an opportunity. There's power in every opportunity. Absolutely. And and I do want to make a comment about show notes. So Andrew and I mention them fairly regularly. In fact, in every conclusion, we say check the show notes. I know some of you cannot find the show notes. So let me just tell you where to get them. If you go to obstaclecourse.com, if you click on the episode, the show notes will be right there. You mean obstaclecoursepodcast.com? Yeah, exactly. I was just saying that because uh, I wanted to test you. But yeah, it's obstaclecoursepodcast.com. Um, don't go to the other one. It's like probably some Tough Mudder race or something. But yeah, obstaclecoursepodcast.com. Click on there. Click on the episode and you'll see the show notes. We actually do take time to put in the show notes. We link a lot of topics that we've talked about with a guest. And we'll link their business. Uh, we'll link perhaps a book that they've um, recommended. A way to go deeper. Yeah. There can be a lot of truth found when, when we go beneath the surface. And that's where this conversation goes. And we hope you enjoy it. said to Robin this morning she, she said so what are you expecting and I said well I mean I mean I've met Andrew and I mm-hmm. said I just think it's going to be a really cool conversation 
And when you said you were reading the book, that always puts me at ease because then, you know, chances are there's going to be intelligent dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. So we, that's what we shoot for at least. <laughs> okay. Definitely <Good>. dialogue. <laughs> the intelligent yeah. part. It goes in and out. Oh, okay. we get the cool. intelligent part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Woo! Okay. Yeah, no, we, uh, we, we love the, the story and, and the work that you do now and, yeah. um, what you've been through and your openness with it. So as soon as I kind of heard about it from Mike Riley, right. um, I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. for sure. And I love your name obstacle course. Like what a, that's just bang on. Perfect. You know, it's, it's like chariots and horses when people ask, mm-hmm. you know, what's with the title and Neil, who's in the book, uh, who was my high school coach. He always used to say, if, if, if an athlete ever said, oh, well, you know, the boat's old or whatever, he'd always say, it's not about the chariot. It's mm-hmm. the horses pulling it. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor for life, right? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not the boat you get. It's what you do with it. And, and, you know, same with obstacle course. It's, I mean, that's life. It is invariably an obstacle course. Yeah, exactly. So I just think it's great, t- great uh, title. It is all about how you respond and we're we're all faced with adversity and and it's kind of comforting knowing that everyone sees it and often people look at celebrities or, or really successful people and are like oh i bet they their whole life has just been a yeah. smooth sail and a, right. an easy ride but that's never how it is they've probably encountered more obstacles than someone who hasn't kind of shot that For high sure. well not only so. that but the other thing is just the very normal negative feelings that come with pushing yourself or obstacles whether it's you know dealing with fear and anxiety and and some of those things i think a lot of people think that those are bad signs yeah when, when you feel that oh obviously i'm going in the wrong direction right right but but those are just very normal <clears throat> feelings that even you know top athletes feel and you know, i'm sure right. you'll, you'll tell us all about that but um it's just a normal part of it. it's just harnessing those emotions yeah. and using them as fuel instead right. of allowing them to you bet eat you alive right? you bet yeah. yeah, we never no. get away from fear, no matter how much yeah. no fortune yeah. we we come across. Yeah, and that I mean that's our logo, right? It's a glass. It's the top half of the glass, and so right. there's always opportunity. That's that's what I used to say to the boys all the time. You know, where's the opportunity in this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, the the thing we used to talk about all the time was how can this be the best thing that ever happened to us? Right, mm, and yeah, I love that. And so, what I love about that is it kicks it kicks you out of victim. Right, you can feel so- sorry for yourself for about two minutes, and then it's okay. Now I've got to get creative, and so it shuts the ego off. Poor me is done, and now it's about okay. How how can this be the best thing? How do we turn this into a positive? Mm-hmm. And um, I just find that such a good strategy for people when when they do get you know a bit of a kick in the in the chops. We had some interesting reflections on how you described your childhood being the youngest of uh, a few siblings and also having a, a school grounds and at, at your fingertips in the summers and, and playing, which is a similar environment. And actually, we're both the youngest of fam- oh, wow. families. Mm-hmm. And my brother was five years older than me. So that, oh. that sense of always having to try mm-hmm. to compete to try to be as good as somebody who you really didn't have much of a chance with. Right. No. Um, I, in reading it, just the introduction to Chariots and Horses, I, I saw some interesting correlations yeah. there, and it it instilled a sense of competition and drive that has helped me in some capacities, sure. but also has been a challenge. Yeah. So, do you want to just start by kind of painting that picture for us? 
Yeah, it's um, well, I, you know, growing up the the fourth of four and, and having that five year spread when you're when you're that age, the the physical difference in 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 the bodies is is apparent, right? It's clear. And so when you're seven and your next sibling's twelve, or when you're twelve and your next sibling's seventeen, and you're doing interfamily competitions, <laughs> whether it's uh, ping pong or those table hockey games, which we played all the time, <laughs> or even croquet, it did, didn't matter, right? Yeah, I was involved, and. Um, and there was never a letting up of the older siblings because they were competing with each other. So I was a tag along, but I didn't see it as, um, oh, it's just those three and I'm going to do my best. It was, I want to beat them. Mm-hmm. I want to prove myself. And, uh, and so that always made it challenging because invariably I lost all the time, right? But, on, on, and, but then on the instances where, they, where I could perceive them letting up in order to let Jason, you know, win a few or do better, uh, it would set off a fuse in me that uh, I was no charity. I, I don't want, I don't want to win that way. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I agree. It was, uh, it was a driver for sure as a young boy, but I took that story and that habit into my, into my young twenties. Right. And, uh, this notion of, of, um, proving my self-worth became, uh, a chase right and did it work yeah it worked got me on the national team put me in olympic final but um that feeling of of always measuring my self-worth based on how others saw me became my own undoing right it became an interference in the end so um if i could go back i don't know how my parents could have changed it but there are some things that i wish i there are some ways that I wish it, I could have been different um, in, in how I perceived myself. Do you have any memories of, of just playing for the sake of playing as a young child? You know, growing up, I have memories of I, I, a sim, similar story in terms of my parents taught at a school. And when the students were gone, we could just run around the grounds right. of the school. We had, you know, the gym, we had the tennis court. We, we could do whatever we wanted. Often we ran around with BB guns and just shot out windows. Sure. Which I don't recommend, but, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. But we just played. There was no competition for a while until I kind of got into sports. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they taught us, hey, you're supposed to have a comp-, you right. know. And then they started drilling that into you. And then that play switched to almost like it was work. And y- you know all about it. But do you ever remember just younger having that play for the sake of play? Yeah. It was a beautiful place. Yeah. And um, uh, because it provoked a, pl- uh, a response of joy. Mm-hmm. Now in the work we do with clients or teams or whoever, you know, it's, it's that joy that we want to encourage others to recapture because the joy is the foundation of flow. And mm-hmm. from flow, we perform better. But mm-hmm. uh, in Western culture, we, we undermine flow state because we do make it about the extrinsic measurements. And so the joy becomes um, quantified. So you can be joyful if, <laughs> and, uh, You're and hitting that, your marks, right, You're hitting right, your targets right. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If yeah. I say you can, yeah. y- you can celebrate, then you can. But if I say you can't, then right. why, why would you? 
Mm-hmm. And, and so we undermine our children. But mm-hmm. when, when, when we do get to that stage in life where um, winning becomes important mm-hmm. or standing out becomes important. Right. So right. And when I was able to determine or decipher that adults spoke differently about me um, when I did something um, that was extraordinary, that became a moment of, hmm, I like that feeling. Mm-hmm. I want to do it again. I, I want to have that external uh, validation from the people that are important to me, my parents, my teachers, my neighbors, my coaches. And, um, you know, invariably that's where the chase kind of began. Would you say that's what would be like the birth of your ego? Yeah, oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. That's, that's um, um, I mean, in again, coming back to the, the individuals I work with now, invariably it comes back to ego and uh in terms of what undermines uh not only our happiness and our state of joy but our ability to to show up as our best self for sure and confidence is such an important tool for for a healthy self-esteem and there's just such a fine line and it's it's a, a challenge to be able to establish confidence in oneself without that overinflated ego driven it's all about me mentality yeah and and that's a really interesting point because i often hear um coaches and you know sport analysis talk about swagger and bravado and and all that sort of stuff and i just see it as a crock Mm -hmm. it's surface and with the athletes that i used to work with when i was coaching rowing i'd say you know what it's the quiet crews that you want to look out for (laughs) <laughs> because mm-hmm. they yeah. have no need to have swagger or sure. bravado. They they have an understanding, a deep, quiet understanding of what they're capable of and where they need to go in order to reach their best performance. So the, the crews or teams that are chest-pounding or cheering or walking around like they're God's gift, sure, they're going to be in it, but it's the ones who come to the course, do their stuff, and leave quietly. Those are the ones that you want to be mindful of. Yeah. And even when you leave the sports arena and you see those types of people who are chest pounding you know, <laughs> on the street right. or, or at in a job or, or what have you, I look at them and I think, I wonder what pain they're covering up. And yeah. there's, yeah, there's uh, that sense of overdoing it overinflation of of who you are to protect yourself yeah and and, i mean it's it's cliche but you know where's the compensation here right what what is that in place of Mm -hmm. and um and back to that old expression right still waters run deep and 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 i just i see it so often that it's the ones who are just quiet and present and grounded that are the ones who are able to do extraordinary things mm-hmm. without having to tell the world beforehand. So, Do you feel like those ones still have ego? For sure. I think they have a healthy sense of self. There's no right. doubt. But I think they have a, a relationship with their ego where mm-hmm. their, their own awareness um, allows them to recognize when they are stepping in or handing the wheel over to ego because uh, mm-hmm. you know let's face it when we hand over the steering wheel to ego um, it often results in trouble <laughs> yeah. so this the thing about ego though that's annoying is is 
when you don't let him drive, he's the most annoying backseat driver. Sure. Right? So so how do you be like, shut up? I know the way, but yes, you can still come. Yeah. And and he and he or she is always going to come. Exactly. They're not going anywhere. Right. And so yeah. what in my coaching, what I always encourage clients um, to try to adapt, it's back to that expression, that which you resist persists. And so yeah, if you tell sure. your ego to shut up, they're going to get louder. Mm-hmm. So... What I encourage people to do is to just have a conversation and to say, what is it you want me to know? Like, why are you so upset? And, and it's like us. We want to be heard. So when we feel heard and understood, it takes the charge out of it, right? Mm, and so yeah. I believe with our ego, it's no different. Um, often people refer to it as the critic. It's our yeah, critic. Right. But I see our critic as a frustrated coach. It used to be our coach. And and now it's pissed off because we don't listen to it. Mm -hmm. And so it gets louder and louder and more obnoxious the more we don't listen to it. Mm -hmm. So if we, what would it, it's often a question I ask clients is, what would it take to shift your your critic back to being your coach? What would that look like? Yeah, great question. And and when they when they when they fully embrace that idea that wow maybe maybe that voice is actually wanting to help me is actually a part of me and if I listen to it and have a conversation with it then maybe I can you know help move things along as opposed to just getting stuck in this dialogue of telling each other to shut up and how horrible one another is. Right. Yeah. So I often hear people say, you've got to quiet the critic. I don't agree. The, the critic wants to get listened to. Just so listen. embrace yeah. it. Say hello to it. Love it. Diffuse it. Yeah. And, and then you're able to move forward quietly with, with a heightened awareness. Yeah. Even our negative habits have some sort of positive intention. We created them for a reason, and whether it was self-protection or, or those defense mechanisms that we put up, sure. even those negative spirals that we get into, there's, there is generally something that there's a reason why. Mm-hmm. So figuring out what that reason why is and then answering that question can help kind of tone down that, that negative for sure. belief. And I think with compassion, right? So, um, so to be compassionate with those questions... So to go at your critic with, with a, a, a true willingness to understand, right? As opposed to, okay, what is it you want to hear? Or, you know, what is it you want to say? The ego can, can decipher whether it's genuine or not. This building up of the ego and the, the way you've come to understand it now, it often takes some moments or a lot of moments of self-awareness and building self-awareness and kind of starting to really understand our true selves and the, the way you're putting it now is is fantastic and enlightening but it wasn't always this way no, for you just goodness, like no. it, like it wasn't for for anyone for sure and so for those listeners who haven't heard kind of how how that sense of self got created and how broken you were for a period of your life do you want to just take us back to you at 24 and and going in in 88 to Seoul and and the experience you had there right um my re- I mean, I guess the foundation of that was if we're going to shine a light on, on you know, really the, the big container of fuel was, was this belief that if I won an Olympic gold medal, if I was an Olympic champion, I'd be fixed. 
that'd be it, right? I'm, I'm done. Good to go. I'm worthy. <laughs> um, In whose eyes? Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Wow, when that didn't happen, when we finished last in the final and had, you know, the worst race of our time together as a crew, it was a moment that I wasn't prepared for. Um, and so I went through all of the stages, I guess, that one would expect. There was disbelief, there was embarrassment, there was uh, rage and anger, there was the whole gamut. Um, wanting to just be isolated and and not have to talk about it or acknowledge it in front of people and yeah he was just a young kid and he had lived uh, a really sheltered life right when you're a professional athlete you live a sheltered existence because every moment of your day is planned you have a number of people surrounding you who are responsible for laying out your days and weeks and months and your challenges in the day are first world problems, right? What am I eating? Mm -hmm. When am I going to have my nap? <laughs> uh, what's my next training session? What does it look like? And uh, yeah, poor me, right? But uh, it was necessary. I mean, that's what you do to get to the, to get to the world stage, I suppose. It has to be done. Um, but invariably, when I look back now, what was... The interference in the, in that moment, and I can honestly just speak for myself. I can't speak for my crewmates, but it was who I was in that race that was ultimately uh, the interference. Right? Mm -hmm. Did I train well? Did I work hard? Did I eat properly? Get sleep? Yeah, I did all of the all of I ticked all the boxes. Right? All the things that an Olympic athlete does in preparation. But as my wife Robin reminds me often our being is the currency of our doing and so mm, um, who I was being as an athlete was toxic and um, it was good enough to get me into an Olympic final I won't I won't deny that but in the moment it was also getting in the way of allowing me to achieve my best race on the day and in terms of that race and and we won't linger here too long People can find this information sure. out by reading some of the work you, that you've done or, or there's various interviews that are about this specific race. But one note is you guys had shown the quality to win that gold medal. There was in in the prelims and, and in the lead up to the race, amazing speed was shown and then yet it just didn't come together. So what do you think it is that causes that inability to reach potential in, in a team dynamic. For sure. And, and we see that all the time, it, you know, when teams choke, if you will. Mm. Um, so in an upset that we see in sports, you know, what allows that? Right? It's not like the team um, forgot how to play or uh, all of a sudden become un became unfit or, you know, something changed in the dynamic of that team. And that allowed the underdog or the or the team that was not expected to perform at a level that in the end proved better and allowed them to win and so in our instance yeah sure we had moments where it was speed that was um certainly capable but in the end um wasn't good enough and so again i i'm not going to lay blame 
across the board, but I can speak for myself. And, and when I look back to the summer and the months leading up to that Olympic final, were there some things that we did that I can see now as a, as a coach um, that interfered with our ability to perform on that day? Yes, for sure. I, including the dynamic of the team. We had members from the Olympic, from the 1984 crew in that boat, Olympic gold medalists. And then we had newcomers and, and there was a playful um, competition, competition almost. between yeah. those for sure. We were called the young guns and we had um, the highest erg scores in the boat and, you know, and that was wonderful. But, you know, looking back at it now, I don't believe we had a crew. There, there weren't nine people completely united in the pursuit of, of one goal, um, whether it was winning the Olympic gold medal or finding our best race on the day. Was that the interference? It probably didn't help. Like I say, there were a ton of things that I think went sideways leading up to it that to me now makes sense, right? I, I don't look back at that and still scratch my head. I look back at it and go, yeah, that makes sense. Even though there was the, the possibility, the, the, um, the speed that, that may have resulted in a different outcome. You know, Jason, bringing up the hero's journey again, there's, there's a part of the journey where the hero has a death um, and then there's a rebirth. Yeah. Would you say that was the moment where perhaps the, the Jason of that time died or did that come later? It was the beginning, right? Okay. Because what happened in the weeks following coming home and, and uh, seeing the front page of the Globe and Mail and mm -hmm. seeing the photo of us at the f after finishing crossing the line on the front page of the Globe and Mail in the National Sports Section and, and, then, and then seeing the headline, Canadians bomb out in Seoul, and then reading the article. It was the first time I had ever been publicly shamed before. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it was a moment of realizing, wow, this was bigger than I thought. And my ego didn't know how to handle that. Yeah. Uh, my 24-year-old self did not know how to handle that. And I just thought, geez, I got to hide because this is really uncomfortable um, to be called out in front of everybody. And um, so that began, the, that was the moment where everything changed. Um, and it was a long journey of change, but yeah, you know, as I like to say now, I look back at that Olympic final as the greatest gift of my life because mm -hmm. it was the death of that uh, of that young man who was, you know, if we're going to call a spade a spade, he was a jackass. So, <laughs> um, it, it's interesting yeah. speaking about him like in the third person, right, like yeah. how much of that, there, there's so many questions I have right now, but how much of that it does feel like a different person hmm. in every in every aspect is he still in me he is for sure and i hear him at times even when i was coaching i could hear that that approach come up in me and you know often i would just chuckle <laughs> and i'd just say wow you're still alive mm -hmm. and uh so when people say wow you've changed i i don't know that i've changed I'm I'm just able to recognize how dysfunctional and and tragic that young man was. Um, you know, I often say, if I could go back, if I'd do anything, I'd hug him 
and tell them, you know what, you're, uh, you're worth something more than just a medal and you don't have to chase your self-worth. And I'm sorry that you think that way, but you're going to wake up the same guy the morning after that Olympic final, even if you win. Mm-hmm. And what you think is going, what you think that medal is going to bring you, it's not going to bring you. Yeah, I just wish I could have had that conversation with him. Or somebody could have. Or somebody could right? have. Because it right. sounded like you, you put yourself in that isolation by not speaking to anybody about what was really right. going on, by heading off to the other part, like the opposite corner of the world and, and living in Australia. Right. Um, but at the same time, people had to know the kind of pain that you were dealing with. And it seems like, and this is a natural thing, we have trouble really reaching out to people that, that are suffering at times and, and we can leave, leave them in isolation. And, mm-hmm. and as your example showed, it, it put you in a, in a worse state. So I wonder how people who know of someone in a similar situation might be able to present themselves in order to give them what they need, even if that person is hesitant. Right. I, I, you know, I think for me, um, what compounded the situation was thinking that I was the first person to ever be going through this. And, you know, now we know different, but it was 1980, 1980s, late 1980s. And we just didn't talk about stuff. You know, when, when you said, you know, if someone did come up and had a conversation, I don't know, I, I can't think of who would have. And I don't know how receptive I would have been. You know, my mom often says, goodness, I wish we had tried to speak with you. And I get that as a parent now, especially, geez, Murphy, if I had seen my, if I had seen my daughter going through that, I'd want to intervene. But the guy that I was, I think he would have just in his, in his inner voice would have just said, you know what, go away because, um, I need to sort this out. And, um, so all that to say, I think just knowing that someone else was feeling what I was feeling would have normalized it for me and would have allowed me to talk to someone about it. When the book came out, when Chariots and Horses came out, and I got the feedback from Olympians from all around the world who said, holy crap, Like I went through what what you went through. And thank you for, te- for telling your story because now I don't, now I don't feel like I was crazy at the time. So if I had felt that I wasn't crazy at the time for, for feeling the emotions that I was having, that would have been the open door or the crack door to, to say, Hey, can we talk? Because, wow, I'm having some crazy dreams and this hurts and I'm starting to do stuff that's destructive and I need to tell someone. Well, and part of it too, Jason, is we we didn't have Brene Brown 30 years ago saying, you know what, vulnerability is not only normal, but it's actually manly or womanly. It's it's actually fully human. It's human. Right. And so we we didn't have that saying it's okay. You you know, you can you can cry if you need to. You can say, "I, I feel really scared right now. I feel really weak. We didn't have that ability, but now we do. Right. And I can tell you, use it in your own coaching. Yeah. And and I think that's a lot of what was happening is that that 24 year old didn't have that safe place to have a normal human reaction to, to this massive, you know, devastating loss. For sure. And, and so much, especially in rowing, especially so much about the sport is ego. Right. It, it is about being how tough you can mm-hmm. you can be. That That's mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's a non-combative sport. No one gets hit. 
or there's no checking or what have you, but it is all about ego because um, it's, you know, they call it the pain game, right? How long can you sit in the pain? And that's, uh, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's BS. It really is. And I, I just see that as, as undermining performance as well, because we make it about this chest pounding thing that if you can be tougher than everyone else, you can be good enough. And uh, does it hurt? And do you have to have some resilience? Yes, you do. But if your fuel is just so that you can check, you can say that you're tougher than, um, that's a toxic fuel. So, how does it feel to know that alongside Brene Brown, you're someone who has given people the ability to feel vulnerable and, and getting that response from fellow Olympians? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon when we, when I, uh, during a keynote or at our workshops, you know, it used to happen initially when I started doing um, uh, keynotes at a coaching conference, for example, because invariably there was an Olympian in the audience. And um, so at the end of those keynotes, there'd be a lineup of people wanting to ask questions. And when all the questions were done, there'd be one guy or one woman still in the room and they'd come up and uh, we'd start talking and then they'd share that they were, they went to the Olympics and, um, and they'd tell me their story and they'd start crying and I'd just go, holy, holy crap, this is, you know, this is crazy. And, um, and I just think it was a... I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And so by getting up there and exposing myself in terms of my, my emotional vulnerability in telling the story, it does give the safety of others to come forward and say, um, this is what happened to me. And it's my favorite part of keynotes, right? Or workshops. I mean, yeah, it's fun to tell the story, I suppose, and revisit and all that kind of stuff. But, but invariably, it's the dialogue afterwards that I cherish, right? It's having, it's, it's knowing that people trust me on a level to share that deep stuff. And, um, and I take it, I take it seriously, right? Because I know, I know what it's like to get your teeth kicked in on the world stage. And um, when it can make a, a grand, a, a grown man or woman cry in the moment, that's a that's a lot of stuff in there that's festering mm. and is looking for a way to come out. Well, and that's a, it's a really important point that it does continue to fester until you bring it out. So those deep, dark secrets that are, are hiding within us that are maybe not in our consciousness but are still there, they will fester and rot and eat away at us until we deal with them and bring them out and speak to someone who has been through it or we have that trust with and also that that trust is built through vulnerability once you can be vulnerable with someone that's how you build trust you don't build trust and then become vulnerable it's it's one person has the courage to be vulnerable and, and that is what forms true bonds for sure and i think also you know part of going through that journey of 10, 15 years of coming to terms. And it's not like I was unconscious during that time where I didn't know what I was doing. I knew there was something wrong. With the rage and the anger, I knew that was... I didn't recognize myself in those moments. With the depression, I knew that that was off. I was a very upbeat guy before 
all of that. Um, when the eating started, right, when this, um, this incessant control over my diet and losing weight became um, a way of being where I got, where I continued to try to lose weight through obsessive compulsive exercise and uh, an insane eating regimen, I knew that was wrong. And uh, when the health challenges showed up as a result of that, it's not like I didn't know, but I, I was still unable to, to get out of that place. Yeah, it was a bizarre place. And, and I, so when I hear about others and the struggles they go through and, and, and often people pass judgment, well, just change, just stop, like snap yeah. yourself out of it, right? Yeah. That, that's not how it works. You know there's something broken. You can recognize that. But the emotion of it is so strong. Um, and you just get stuck. It, it's hard. You know, when I hear people say, oh, just snap out of it. Well, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Give your head a shake. So you mentioned that you didn't have the skills at the time to deal with those negative patterns and trying to find some way of control and your life and, and getting into a better place. You, did, you didn't have them, but how did you begin the journey to acquire them? What, what did that look like? It was just a process and um, it was an organic process. So, you know, that coupled with the failed comeback for 92, you know, the interesting thing was that 92 would have been sort of my physical peak. I would have been around 28 and that's kind of a physical peak for a rower, um, mid to late twenties. So everything was pointing towards, we'll just come back and do it again. Right. It just, uh, but it wasn't just about going again. It was about fixing what happened in Seoul and taking back my reputation, um, proving that I, that I didn't cause that loss. Even though now I can look back and say, Jace, you were not the reason they lost at the time I had constructed a story in my mind that well, I must have been the reason we lost. I was the second youngest guy in the crew. I was the last guy to make the boat. It's just the way our mind plays, right? So retiring from rowing in 1990, after realizing that my reasons for wanting to go to Barcelona were so destructive, that sort of spilled into a moment of, well, it, you know, I, I sort of, um, I like to call it handing in your membership, right? So I went from, being part of a of a very elite group who 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 in the world could do something very specific at a really high level to just an average person and i know that sounds really horrible but it it was it was like wow yesterday i was an olympian um or i was a guy who had a goal that was noteworthy right that other that that other people sort of stood up and said wow you want to go to the olympics to a guy where you know I have no idea what I'm going to do. You're next. like the rest of us. Yeah. It, it was your yeah. identity was lost. You bet. Yes. Yeah, and for sure. because all of my ident identity had been wrapped up in what I did. Right. And so what I did was try to win Olympic gold medals. And, and that was worthy. Uh, now it was what you're going to go back to school and you're going to get a job. And, and that's nothing big. So it was coming to the realization that if I wanted to, if I want to chase something that's going to be as um, 
as extraordinary as trying to win Olympic gold medal. You better find something pretty big. And so, um, again, it became about a chase, chasing women, chasing uh, a career, chasing money, chasing, you know, you pick the list, right? Pick it. So that, that didn't work out. Um, but I, I think what really changed, what began the next shift was meeting Robin, right? Meeting my wife, who was uh, a national team runner, middle distance runner. She was an Olympian. Uh, and she was different from me. Um, we were polar opposite. And, you know, even to think back now, it does make me chuckle to think that we got married because we were so different. I was such an ass and she was so not. Um, Everything was journey centric to that woman and everything about me was uh, chasing. And when I met her, I I didn't understand her. I, I just thought, wow, how did you get to where you are with that approach to life? (laughs) and I didn't ask her because I thought she was beautiful and I wanted to date her again and And you don't ask that on the first date (laughs) no well I had enough to know that Um, but it was my internal dialogue was crazy and uh, if I had said half of what I was thinking there's no way we'd be married I think what was really the moment for me was watching her compete at the Commonwealth Games in 94 here in Victoria and it wasn't just watching the race, it was knowing the context for Robin. She had been sick through the winter, she'd had some immune challenges, she wasn't necessarily at the top of her game, right? Wasn't feeling all that prepared, and yet she wanted to go out and race. And, you know, again, that inner voice was, why the hell would you go out and race if you don't think you're going to win this? Like, why put that on the line? She just wanted to go out and do her best. And again, I just thought, that is such a weak uh, approach like what a non-combative what a what an uncompetitive mindset and so I went to the race and sure enough the opening lap she was last she was tied for last and I just I just thought this is so embarrassing why would you put yourself I knew her parents were in the, in the stadium and I and my first thought was you know what step off the track just just, just DQ get it like avoid what's going to happen here because this is going to be ugly and then sure enough, halfway through the race, lap five, she was way back in the pack, 50 meters easily off the lead pack. And I just, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Like, why would you keep going at this? And then four laps to go, she, it was like she grew wings and she began to pass people at a rate that was, it was insane. And the crowd, I noticed, the crowd began to notice and soon enough, she was in fourth position. And people were going crazy when she moved into third and then moved into second. And she was a hometown girl. And it was, I, was, I just stood there in disbelief. And then she finished second behind Angela. And uh, I was crying. We can edit that. Um, it was a powerful moment, right? I, I. Um, That's why we're not going to edit. I still consider it the most, um, the most um, impressive, beautiful, mm-hmm. 
remarkable race that I've ever seen, the most inspiring race I've ever seen. Because I knew the context, right? That she was just going to go out and do her best, ill-prepared, and she laid down that performance. So as I stood there, embarrassed that I was crying, mm-hmm. um, I, I thought to myself, well, Jesus, how the hell was that possible, right? Because she didn't, she didn't do what I would have done. She didn't hate her competitors. She didn't go out there to kill anyone, and her intention was not to win. Um, I mean, in fact, at the beginning of the race, before the race started, she was hugging the other um, runners from the other countries. And I just shook my head. And said, this is, <laughs> what are you doing? What is your problem? <laughs> yeah. This is not how you play. Uh-huh. And, um, and so you, couldn't, you can't argue that result. And so began a journey of trying to understand this very complex woman. And to her credit, she, uh, she tolerated me. And I just began to try to understand her and her process. And it's not like she fixed me, right? It's not like she said, wow, you're really screwed up and this is how we can fix you. It was just me watching and seeing this, this approach to life work every time right and even when she didn't meddle or or have these great races she didn't lose the way i lost right mm-hmm. she wasn't devastated at lo- in loss she saw she saw opportunity in loss and she never made it mean anything she took results as information and just took it took them back to the drawing board well right? and like you said earlier your identity was in what you did right and hers was not exactly she was a whole person before the gun went off, right? right? Where I was not. And um, I needed the, the results of a race to, uh, to be, a, well, <laughs> to try to be a whole person. She was a whole person for her entire career. And, and hence the length of her career, 17 years. How many elite athletes run on the world stage for 17, 17 mm-hmm. years? Not many. No. And, and how many of them finish that career at the height of their of their uh, potential, mm-hmm. I, I'd say a f- few. But that is a testament not only to Robin, but to her process, to her belief, and to who she was. Uh, because she she loved running, and running gave her brought her joy, and from that joy she was able to perform at a consistent level that was world class. Mm. So I wonder. If that emotion that came up when reliving that moment, obviously the the pride in, in who was to become your wife was part of it. But I wonder if some of it was that change that happened inside of you that was so instrumental in right. becoming the, the person you are today. And as well, I'm, I'm curious, at that time, obviously you, you learned so much from Robin and she was a big stepping stone and getting all these skills and and coming out of that darkness but i wonder what what you gave to her at that point well uh (laughs) the self-deprecating guy in this moment would say uh grief right a lot of gray hair perhaps but um i would in frustration i'm sure i know because yeah i just know some of our conversations and yeah, she stuck with you. So, yeah. so there's something okay. there, Jason. Okay. I think uh, what I think I gave her was uh, safety. 
um, you know, when we've talked, she felt safe to be herself. I mean, even today, even now, there's still uh, moments where I look at her or watch her and and uh, in awe, and uh, especially when we do our workshops, when we're in a workshop. And I have to remind myself sometimes that I'm not a participant because I'll get sit, I'll be sitting there listening to what she's sharing, and I'll think, oh my goodness, that is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Her understanding of life, of science, of what have you, and then and then I remind, then I sort of be like, okay, well, Jace, you know, you're in, you're a facilitator here. You can't get lost, mm-hmm. and um, but it just never gets old for me. I always take something new from every every time we present or she presents. Well, and my my guess is like all our all our partners, they stuck with us because they saw more in us than we saw in ourselves. I think that's a fair uh, a fair assessment. You know, when I when I think of who I am now, um, and the work I'm doing now, uh, and I'm going to pat myself on the back here. I'm going to yeah. I would I would say. Wow, you're doing some cool stuff, mm-hmm. some important stuff, and maybe it was worth her hanging on for. And if she had the ability to see that decades ago, then good for her, because <laughs> I sure as hell didn't see it. I mean, if someone had said to me after the Olympic final, "It's all good, Jace. This is going to be the foundation of your work someday," mm-hmm. I would have kicked them in the head <laughs> yeah. first of all. Of course, and um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and just said, you know, what are you talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what you said, and, and I know one of your keynote um, speeches is um, the power of process, mm. and, and I and it was a process being twenty four devastated and getting to the point you're at now. I mean, that's a thirty year process. Yeah, but it was definitely a process, and I think people need to remember that because when when they're in that moment, when they're in that you know, rock bottom moment, it is going to be a process getting out. Yeah. And, and you need to be kind to yourself to get out to the point where you're whole enough, as you described, to heal other people and help other people. Right. Or, or becoming more whole. Like, I, I don't yeah. think the process ever ends. Oh, no, no. Definitely we, yeah. I'm still figuring it out. You know, like, as we like to say, we are the work. Yes. Right? We yeah. are the work. Yeah. And, uh, and that class doesn't end until the day you, you're done. So... How does competitiveness play into your life now? You know, the interesting thing about competition or, or that or the competitor is my understanding of that is so different now than it was then. There's a wonderful gentleman named David Megacy who was um, wrote a fantastic book called Out of Their League. Sports Illustrated considers it one of the top 100 most important sports books ever written. He was an NFL uh, linebacker during the late 60s, early 70s, and he wrote a tell-all about the dysfunction of football. And um, we became fast friends when I read his book, he read mine, and, and uh, he's just an, a beautiful man. And he explained competition to me, where, where what he made me aware of was that the, the Latin root word of competitor is competir, which actually means to strive together, right? Not against. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have embraced that in my coaching I always used to tell the boys, it's from your competitor's best race that you're going to find yours. So don't wish ill upon your competitors because they're going to help you find your best race. Don't waste time 
focusing on them. It's a distraction. So, and Robin used to do it all the time. She used to have this annoying expression where she would say, together we fly. And she would always point to the geese as an analogy, right? Geese can fly faster and further when they're utilizing synergy, right? It makes sense. And so in com competition, when we see our, comp our competitors as someone to work with, to strive with, we are able to reach a higher level of performance. So it's one of the things that I really try to focus on when I'm working with clients or with teams or what have you, that if you can just shift the way you hold your competition, you will eliminate an interference. This morning before I came, I was just checking Twitter and there was a tweet from an, uh, an NHL hockey player who used to play in the NHL and he was sort of trying to spur on his old team and he said, and it said, um, if you want to win the Stanley Cup, this is what it takes. And it was hashtag kill, hashtag, mm -hmm. you know, bleed for this, hashtag, like all these macho, combative, battle, uh, war. Gladiator mentality. You bet. And, and I thought, oh my goodness. I went and checked the calendar. It's 2019. And we're still using that stuff. Because it's what we know, right? And uh, But we would argue we know better now. We know that science doesn't back that up. And yet the ego loves that stuff. And so it, we keep it alive. So I have a curious question for you. It seems the ego helped you get to this level of competition. Do you believe... It's it's one of these tough questions because do you believe you would have reached that level of the world stage as an Olympian without the ego? It, well, it would have come with me regardless, but if it was in check, if I was whole before I, as a training athlete, I would have had to use a different fuel. Right. I would have used Robin's fuel. Right. Robin ran, ran so fast was because she loved running. Right? She loved being in the mm -hmm. woods. She loved the process, the meditative process of running. All of that running made her a world-class athlete. Mm -hmm. She didn't train because she wanted to get better and kick the crap out of her, out of some Romanian. Mm -hmm. She just loved running. If I had loved rowing the way she loved running, I would have risen to a higher level. My fuel was about an extrinsic chase validation yeah I, I love how you distinguish between the ego comes anyways because i think sometimes it's confusing when we say just eliminate the ego because because it's difficult like what's that mean you know right. practically speaking you know it's it's there so it, it's not really just eliminate it but but it's it's almost like a voice change yeah it's it's like when you hear the expression you know leave your ego at the door right you know, it, yeah yeah that's impossible yeah what, yeah. what a silly strategy right Right. No, you need to acknowledge the ego that's come with you in the room. That's, right, right. that's, it's impossible to not let ego enter the conversation. But it's finding that balance again, right? Yeah. It's, it is a part of you. It's a natural part of you. But there are other parts of you mm -hmm. as well. And how can you bring those together and, and use them when you need them and, and then leave them behind or just set them aside when, For sure. when compassion or joy and flow is an, a more useful driver right and you know back to this idea of what we bring into the room right this ego that we bring in it's 
it is what makes us unique and different and original. And, you know, the analogy that I like to use is that if we were to take 10 of your listeners and put them in identical kitchens, but separate, same stovetops, ovens, cutting knives, boards, lighting, everything, everything was the same. And we put in those kitchens the same ingredients, same vegetables, same spices and herbs. Everything was the same, but there was no instruction, no measurement. Just make a soup or make a stew. All 10 of those would taste different. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of the preferences and stories and experiences that come with the creator, the chef. Mm -hmm. High performance is no different. The reason people achieve the level they achieve, it's because of what they bring to it. So yes, do you have to train? Do you have to understand strategy? And do you have to have skill and tools and all the tangible pieces of what high performance requires, whether it's sport or, or business or anything? Yes, you need all of those. But all of that happens through you. So if you're not optimal, then all of those other ingredients will be compromised and it's just impossible to not for you to not influence the ingredients that you have Mm -hmm. right it's back to robin's what robin reminds me our being is the currency of our doing so who we are being while we are doing has an impact on our ability to perform and I think I think one of the biggest takeaways that all our listeners are gonna are gonna have is we typically identify with what we do, and so you see people when they retire, and they just sort of fade into oblivion, or they or they just or sometimes they even have premature death because all of a sudden who they were is what they did. They're yep. an, they're an accountant for forty years. They put on a suit, went to the office nine to five, came home. That's that's who they, when they lose the ability to do, then they just they crumble. And that that's really, you know, at, even for myself, as I'm listening to you, I, I'm such a I'm such a doer. Um, it's difficult not to look at myself through a prism of what I do. Yeah. And and when when I have failure failures like like we all do, you know, I take it hard and I expect a lot from myself. And I think it's because, you know, I just have this sense of what I do is who I am. But that but that's not the case at all. And that's actually a bad path to go down because it's, sure. it's a path that's going to lead me to. Um, you know, like depression, it will lead to all kinds of negative things. So it's how, how do you take the, the people like me and our listeners who struggle with not seeing themselves in, in what they do? How, how can they move to a place of being okay with who they are? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, we always encourage to make your doing bigger than what it is. So often people have goals that involve something that's tangible, right? A takeaway. So when we shift that goal to being something about contributing service, um, it ignites a part of us that we're, that's innate. We are all hardwired to want to contribute to, to the greater good. Mm-hmm. So when you can connect those two pieces through what we do, it takes on a different meaning. Right. And that meaning gets us out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's some, it becomes something other than paying bills or, or a mortgage or a, a lease. <laughs> Right, so you can drive that car. It's um, that's something, but it's not enough. Um, you know, I I'll, and this is a tragic, this is the tragic part of of the soul of the race. 
you know, the Germans won that race. They won the Olympic gold medal that I wanted. In the years following the retirement of the stroke of the German men's eight, uh, he killed himself, right? He starved himself to death. And so when people talk about athlete transition, it, what happened to me wasn't just because we lost. It happens regardless of whether or not, it can happen regardless of whether or not you win or lose. Uh, Michael Phelps is the poster boy for that. Look at the challenges that he had after London. Mm-hmm. What he needed to win one more gold medal, like that would have been that would have tallied enough. So, when he came back to Rio for a different reason, he he was whole before the games. Mm-hmm. Right, he he had gone through, he had hit rock bottom after London. He'd got some help. He'd got himself back together. He'd found purpose uh, in his life outside of swimming, and swimming took on an expression for him as opposed to a chase. And so now he's thriving post, post-athletic career. His, who he was was complete with or without that Olympic medal. And, and so you look to that and say, well, what can we learn from that, from that guy? Because on the surface, we would think, wow, he's got it all after London. If he had it all, why did he go through what he went through? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it doesn't fill us up, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, not, it's never what we think it's going to be. No. So how do you know? How do you find that purpose for someone who is struggling, who is having a difficult time capturing their identity? What What is it? I mean, Michael Phelps is an extreme example mm-hmm. of someone in the spotlight, but it's a reflection of the struggle that we all face and, and not feeling whole. How do we get there? Yeah, I, and that's, a, you know, to use Michael Phelps as an example for twofold, right? Because you think here's a guy who's got it all to get all together. He's he's got it all and and the world is laid out in front of him now. What it also does in that story is it demystifies the notion of it's the human experience and it doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps or Michael Smith, someone you've never heard of. It doesn't matter. We are all human beings. We all have human emotion. We all have human needs. And um and we all go through it. How do you find that? I think it's it's a knowing, right? It's a feeling. Um, and you know when it's different. Even when I started sharing my message, goodness, 10, 15 years ago, I had a different fuel. I was pissed off after I got the feedback from the from my first book. And and I thought, wait a second. We know this happens to athletes and we haven't changed the system. We create programs like Own the Podium, which only ramps it up and we fund it. Are you kidding me? I, I can even I can feel myself getting right, you know, mm-hmm. fired up right now just yeah. talking about it. Yeah. That infuriated me that we had a, a group of individuals in this country who were not only knowingly setting athletes up for what I went through, but were throwing jet fuel on it. And so being who I was and am sometimes, I thought, well, screw you. I'm going to push back. And I got very public, very vocal. And my reason for speaking was to call them out 
it was an against process. It was a competition, me against sport administrators and coaches in the old way. And I was going to show them, right? I was going to change it. And um, no surprise, it was exhausting for me to get up and share that story with the amount of anger that I had in me in, in telling the story. And I know those early keynotes were filled with, with my rage of this is wrong. What an audience would take away today is so different than what they would have taken away then. I have a levity to me now. I have an acceptance to me now. And I realize that I'm, I'm just sharing a story. And it's an invitation now for people to come to it when they're ready. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told how to be. And, and who am I to do that telling? So I see my role now as, as putting it out there. And if people want to come to it and try it on, awesome. If not, keep at it. And hopefully there'll come a day when you're ready to hear it. So you mentioned people don't like to get told what to do. And right now in, in youth sports, that's obviously that's a big part of what coaching is and it's an experience that you had as as a young athlete and we also see statistics don't lie less and less youth are being engaged with sports especially once they read reach a point in their life where they do have a choice and they can say no and kids are are less active i heard it was like 75 percent of kids quit sports by the age of 13 correct that's that's crazy. And it's going it's going it's up. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So how much of that do you think has to do with that warrior mentality win at all costs? And what impact does that have on on the youth? And what do you think would happen if there was a large change in the dynamic and it was more about this is part of your journey, this is meant to be a building block for who you will become as a person and and it's about the process yeah and and this is the paradox right is that if we did make it about process in this country if we did make it about um having sport as a vehicle for personal development as opposed to winning stuff we would have um <laughs> we'd have better athletes and that's the that's the part that I find interesting for organizations like Own the Podium. I see the exodus from sport as the trickle down impact of Own the Podium. It's a it's a careful what you wish for because what they wanted was to build a culture where we only celebrate podium people, right? We only celebrate people who win. So the message to coaches across the country was then I better get these athletes winning. To me, it didn't create coaches that were winning obsessed. It, it gave coaches who were already winning obsessed permission to, to be that way all of the time. Right. Yeah. And so it, because it was like, well, look, what, this is what we're doing. This is the, this is the, are the marching orders, right? If, if this is what we're celebrating, then I want to be part of that game. So what's happened is now, <laughs> is now we're having a, we have a smaller athlete pool to draw on. And so you talk to national team coaches, 
and they will tell you they see a shift in the young athletes that are coming up. They're not athletes anymore. They're just trained at being able to do one specific thing. They're more likely to break down because as children, I'll speak for my generation, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but and I'm assuming you probably did as well, but we grew up climbing trees, we grew mm -hmm. up outside making yeah. our own games, being on our bikes all day, being active. Yeah. And now activity is planned and it's run by adults. There's no play in it. You talked, we talked about play before. You know, I, I wonder if I were to ask my daughter the same question. Can you decipher between what play felt like and what being on a volleyball team feels like? So I think we've created a situation in this country where we, are, we have undermined what it is that they set out to do. So the whole purpose of On the Podium was to win more medals internationally. I get it. I understand that. It's, I mean, I, I like when we win too. The way they've gone about it has created a, um, this impact on youth sport that was, I believe, unexpected. And now they have a bit of a conundrum on their hands because it is starting to impact the pool from which these elite athletes are drawn from. There's no question of whether or not we have to change. We just have to change because it's, it's now, forget about elite sport, we're, we're going to see it in our healthcare because children will become right. unfit, yeah. unhealthy. We're already seeing mm -hmm. the next generation will not live as long. And uh, like the trickle down, the, 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 the bigger picture thinking of sport and what it serves is going to be compromised, right? And uh, all for the ego and, the, and sort of that chest pounding of being being one of the top winning nations well so. and it's interesting we talk about all these all these um, kids who aren't playing sports anymore and well what are they playing well we know a lot of them are playing video games and i think it was you who said in a podcast i heard that um one of the one of the draws of video games is it's the one place they can play without adult interference yeah, you bet and i thought that was that was that that helped me even you know, with with kids who who enjoy video games, and I don't think video games are necessarily bad. You know, but but I never saw it that way. As that's a one place where they don't have somebody being like, "Come on, go harder, yeah. go faster, right. go harder." You know, it's they can just play and be competitive still, and and they are playing with other people too. They're not just in their rooms. I mean, there's a whole network online, so they're still getting sort of the the big benefits of competition and play, but without the exercise and without the adult for sure in you know led engagement. And it makes more sense. Yeah. When we, when we made our games as children, our parents didn't, we didn't have to say, hey, dad, is that okay? Yeah. No, like, no. Yeah. We made the rules. Yeah. We decided what was fair. It was, there was no adult interference. Kick the can, all those, all those classic, you know, hide and seek games. You made the rules together. Yeah. You, you've, you, yeah. And you, you had a sense of freedom and independence. For sure. Which yep. in, in parenting styles these days due to fears of another example of when we're motivated by fear it it has negative consequences but the children don't feel like they they have that independence or freedom to roam and and explore and learn and it has consequences one of the more powerful things i've heard you say jason is is you uh, one of your students um, came back um, from the 2000 Olympic Games mm. after some success and came and gave a speech to some of your students. And, and you listened to that speech. And, mm. and 
I'll let you tell yeah. the story. You know, and tell it. Tell us. You know what, sure. what that experience. He was, was like. a he was a, a young fellow that I coached in his first year of rowing at a school, independent school here in Canada, and and um, yeah, the coach that he had in me, that old guy, was um, <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have let my son or daughter sit in the boat and, and be on the receiving end of that coach. He, he was frightening. Mm -hmm. So he, he went on to continue rowing and made the national team and went to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And, and, um, and he had had numerous coaches between myself and that Olympic Games, but you know, no one had changed the story, right? It was still, it's what the sport knew and I would argue continues to know. So they ended up finish, finishing seventh at the Olympics where they won their petite final. It's a reasonable outcome. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly didn't think any less of him. When he came home, I asked him to come up to where I was working, which was his alma mater. And I said, hey, you know, it'd be really cool if you shared your Olympic journey. And he said, yeah, I'd love to. And so he, I introduced him and, um, and I did take a moment to say, hey, I was Brian's first coach here at the school. And, and there was some pride in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, he began to speak and and it was awesome you know he started talking about the olympic village and being in sydney and bondi beach and it was wonderful but then he began to talk about the competitive part of, of rowing at the olympic games and his whole sense of who i knew changed in that expression of the story so he, be, he became louder and more aggressive and faster as he started to describe being down at the course with the Italians, the Russians, the Germans. And then he just, he just dropped this bomb in the chapel and said, you know, it was a war. It was a goddamn war. And, and I just went, oh, goodness, you know, mm -hmm. like, buddy, <laughs> this is a chapel mm -hmm. and that's not okay. Anyway, and he didn't stop. He didn't, I don't think he even hurt himself. He just mm -hmm. kept going. And in that moment, I looked at him and I thought, wow, all of the words that he's using, the way he's using them is exactly how I coached him. And, and it was really a moment of legacy for me. And I just thought, look what you've done. And that was it. Like that was it. You know, as I said before, there, it was an organic process of of this shift that I went through. That was a that was a, a you know perhaps a nail in the coffin, if you will, um, because I went back home after that morning talk, pulled out the front page of the Globe, that photograph, and I looked at that photograph. I hadn't looked at it in forever, and I just said, "Look what you've done! You've given this experience to a younger athlete." And how does that feel? Not very good. And so that was it. I, I just told I went out and talked to Robin. She was just got back from a run. She was still training. And uh, and I told her what happened. And you know, she looked. She felt the same thing I felt. And I said, "That's it. I'm not. I, I am never using the word win again." All of my coaching changed in that afternoon. Like, I just. Mm -hmm said, I cannot live with teaching another kid who I was uh, is the way to be, right? Mm -hmm. It's just... Phew. Yeah, defining moment for sure. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. a biggie. Yeah. So 
after that moment you you continued to be a a presence with youth with with coaching with teaching and using your new sense of being and your new identity and and instructing with that and and having some really positive contributions and and I'm wondering at this point in your life where do you see your journey taking you oh wow big question um you know i think for the first time in my life maybe i'm not so sure i have a goal Hmm. i just think (laughs) i'm just open to what's what's coming because i would have never guessed this are there things that i want to do do i love the work we're doing am i open to where it can take us yes to all of that but it's not like i have this goal of wanting to do something or be something i'm i just i'm good with where we are and uh i still have a sense of ambition i want to i want to share our message with more people um i want to open this up to to bigger audiences yeah okay that's i guess that's a goal but i don't lose sleep over it the way i i don't obsess about it the way i would have over my olympic goal and what's the effect of that um a much a much healthier sense of self you know and and this is the interesting piece is that like i said i don't feel any less ambitious because i'm not you know ocd over wanting to achieve something i'm not chasing anything probably for the first time in my life Mm. i've got nothing to prove here so could it be said that 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 the goals and the ambitions are now for the first time or or for the truest time aligned with with your own sense of purpose yeah and i think you know that's a wonderful way to put it and i think Mm -hmm. you know the way when you asked earlier how does someone know or how you know i think you just know right when and again back to that cliche when work doesn't feel like work when your job feels like uh, just who you are uh, that's when you know and it doesn't matter what you do. I love, there's a beautiful story of a custodian in, a, in a, um, an elementary school in the U.S. where um, he was explaining to someone what he does. And, uh, well, no, sorry, the, the, the gentleman who was in a suit and tie had mentioned to him, you know, what is it that you do uh, as, a, as a custodian? And and he said, well, I'm a custodian, I suppose, but but I see it as I make this place safe and clean so that young children can come here every day and get an education. So that gives him purpose. And it allowed him to do it for for decades. And so this one bit of footage that I saw was him coming into a room, one uh, into an assembly, and being acknowledged by all of the children in that room. That, that is an example of taking the most menial task, one that the majority of society would look down upon as, wow, you're just a janitor? And he's given it a life purpose, right. one that has allowed him to do the job from a place of joy every day. Because it's not just about cleaning toilets. It's about something bigger. And so... It's what we always say with athletes, you know, make the goal line bigger than just when the race is over or when the whistle blows, 
make it bigger so that you're so you align with purpose not just an, a moment of achieving it, and you know to use sport again it's why often why track coaches often tell their athletes to run through the finish line because mm-hmm. our, un, our our unconscious self wants to let up before it's over but if we see it if we see the finish line as being beyond what we want to achieve we don't let up no and so the results we achieve become byproducts of of what we're trying to to serve does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely and one thing i was thinking about too jason is you know we're so good at when the balance is off, we just go to the other extreme. My dad always said that to me. He's like, between two extremes lies the truth. Mm. And, and it's so easy to overcorrect. And so when we think about the future of coaching and performance and competition, you know, from where you came from, or and it still exists, um, that winning is everything, vanquish your enemy, you know, that bloodthirsty competition, to now where we say, oh, everybody gets a ribbon yeah. and there's no competition. Right. Um, I feel those are two extremes. Sure, I agree. I feel like there's a healthy middle, and and that's what you've been articulating today. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't believe in that everyone gets a ribbon either. No, as much as I don't believe in the archaic combative approach that every, it's a war and right. you got to go out there and kill someone. Right. Both are dysfunctional. Yes. Both interfere with what it is we want sport to give society. Absolutely. Right. So yeah. competition is is a healthy experience. What makes it destructive is what we make it mean. So if you're if you lose, you're a loser. You're unworthy. If you win, you're you can be validated, and I'll listen to you, and I'll in fact I'll I'll sort of shine the light on you. Mm-hmm. So we cater to to the lesser parts of us in order to motivate children, athletes to perform. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it loses its appeal. It's in business. It's the same reason why. When, when an employee goes to a boss, for example, and says, I've been offered X amount of dollars or what have you. I've been incentivized to leave your company and mm-hmm. go work for someone else. And that boss says, oh, well, here, let me offer you this. And so they turn around and stay. But what stats show they're gone within six months anyway? Right. Because the incentivizing is never enough. And so... I think we take that and we look at life and we say, okay, what's what's incentivizing me? Is it something that's tangible, something that I'm going to get, or is it something that's going to influence the way I feel? I have, I vote for the feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always going to serve you. It's yeah. it's the most pure burning fuel you can utilize because it never runs out. In fact, it it gets stronger why we call it intrinsic motivation right because the fuel comes from within mm. it's a it's a cleaner burning fuel absolutely well i think we're just about to wrap things up mm. here but i i really want to express my gratitude for providing some fuel and wisdom that athletes non-athletes anyone who's listening is going to be able to utilize in in their own journey and having the courage to share yours so openly and the motivation behind it to help others who are faced with a similar struggle to not have to be victim to the pain that you went through is is really noble and and i i very much appreciate that that and the work that you do and 
And honestly, we wish we could have had Robin, but one of the obstacles in the obstacle course is we have three microphones. Yeah. <laughs> well, so fair. we got to get more. <laughs> or maybe we'll we'll take the opportunity to bring Robin yeah, on. Yeah, and, and, exactly. And then we can ask her the same question. Yeah. yeah. That would be interesting. The yeah, other we, side of the story. We should do that. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we do keynotes and and I start and I share my version of the story and then <laughs> right. and then we make a joke. Well, now Robin's going to tell what really happened. And um, <laughs> but you know, just a quick point to that notion of the pain that I went through or or what others go through. I don't begrudge that. It, it was a necessary process. And and again, back to the idea that I, knowing isn't enough, right? If I had known that this was coming, I don't know that it would have been enough to prevent what I went through. You know, getting your knees scraped isn't always a bad thing. No. Right? So I don't know that a pain-free life is a better life. I had some bumps and bruises, yes. But wow, did I ever learn some cool stuff. You know, one of the best questions I ever got was from a uh, an eight-year-old kid who asked, do you ever wish that you had won or been a part of that crew in 92 that went to Nar- Barcelona? Now, the, the interesting thing about that crew in 92 was that they went back and they won. They won the Olympic gold medal. And in my heart of hearts, I know I could have been in that crew. But what would have happened if I had been in that 92 crew was that everything that I utilized to get to Barcelona, all everything, the motivation, the resentment, the bitterness, the revenge, the retribution, all of that would have been legitimized in that victory. I would not want to be the 54-year-old version of that guy because he would be frightening. And I sure as hell wouldn't be married to Robin. You know, would that have been the right ending to come back and win and be justified? Hollywood would certainly tell us so, right? But, but my truth is that, that that would have been the worst ending. That would have been the worst way my, my life could have gone. And you got to know I'm a competitive guy. I would have loved to have won, won an Olympic gold medal. So for me to sit here and say losing the Olympic gold medal was the greatest gift of my life, that, that's, you know, it took some years to get there, right? But um, I, I, I'm always wary of... of people wanting to avoid uh, bumps or pain or what have you, because on the other side of that is some pretty cool stuff. You just articulated the heart of our podcast. Yeah. That's exactly why we created it, is we believe those obstacles, those tough moments define us and make us into Mm -hmm. our better selves. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Those, yeah, thank you. Awesome. Holy. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm, for sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.